To me, social transformation is the recognition that people, societies, structures, cultures, institutions, they are ever-changing, they are evolving, they are also malleable. Social transformation is about the acknowledgement that things change, that adaptions are made, but not all adaptions are to the greatest benefit of everyone. And we have to acknowledge that folks resist certain types of change when that change adversely impacts the way that they live their life and their ability to thrive and support their families and their communities. Welcome to the very first episode of OK School Me. I'm Selena Osuna, the postdoctoral scholar at ASU's Social Transformation Lab. Wait, social transformation? What does that mean? Well, for the Social Transformation Lab, it means that we reimagine equitable, just, and intersectional ways to deepen personal belonging and end impacts of exclusion and harm. OK, school me. Okay, but first, let's take a second to explain how the podcast is structured and set up. For each episode, after an introduction from one of us at the Social Transformation Lab, we'll take a brief look at the main topic in a segment called Class Begins. Following that, we'll get to hear from various students at ASU as they share their thoughts on the topic, in today's case, social transformation. In the next segment called Leader Talk, we've invited leaders from our community to speak from their experiences and discuss how their work meaningfully engages with the topic at hand. For this episode, Leader Talk is entirely dedicated to the variety of definitions and practices of social transformation as taken up by educators, leaders, artists, activists, and changemakers in our community. So we'll hear from a range of voices, while in the rest of the episodes, the segment will sound more like a conventional interview. And every episode will end with a learning moment and a call to action, where we'll recap what we learned and provide information for anyone interested in learning more and getting involved. Let's begin our transformation for today and get this lesson started. Okay, school me. Known as the man who invented the field of management, social scientist Peter Drucker argued that no century in recorded history has experienced so many social transformations and such radical ones as the 20th century. From the violence of the great world and civil wars, mass tortures, genocides, and holocausts, to the devastating impacts of the climate crisis, the tightening of global economic power, and the rise and fall of the blue-collar industrial working class in the West— Drucker argued that the 20th century saw the most societal change than any other century. However, when it comes to thinking about the nature of the change, who benefits from it, and who's left behind in the struggle, we have sociologist and pan-Africanist civil rights leader W.E.B. Du Bois to thank for providing us with astute and prophetic analysis, in 1903 no less, of what was the greatest problem of the 20th century, and that is the problem of the color line which today we talk about as the problem of structural racism. Du Bois set the stage for thinking about and reflecting on the role of race, racism, and colonial and imperial structures that that advance race-based power dynamics across societies. American literary titans like Ernest Hemingway, William Faulkner, and Toni Morrison wrestled with issues of race, as did our pop culture creators of film and television, like Norman Lear, Spike Lee, John Singleton, and Ava DuVernay. 
Ultimately, while social transformation has positive and negative outcomes for communities, it's important to investigate how certain groups are excluded, bypassed, or even erased in the process of advancing social change of any kind. How groups respond to the change, whether through adaptation or resistance, is a powerful barometer for how certain political, economic, or social measures will impact communities. Sociologist Stephen Castles developed an interdisciplinary approach to defining social transformation as a process of global interconnectedness, whereby regional, national, and local communities form a global society linked and affected by one another, as change happening in one location has ripple effects on the whole global system. His approach to social transformation is based on the premise that social change affects every society given the effects of globalization, regionalization, and other forms of cross-national governance. Another premise is that globalization has led to the increased polarization of the rich and poor and social exclusion or the inability for individuals to fully engage in economic, social, political, and cultural life, which increases the disadvantages and marginalization of more groups of people. Our global society has created the conditions for local issues to have global impacts. Global factors yield different results in different places, and to fully understand the impacts, we must have detailed knowledge about local dimensions and the specificity of cultures, communities, and societies. Understanding the changing impacts of social transformation requires nuanced thinking that explores context, relationships, and the difference of impact. Knowledge is the key resource of our time, yet knowledge production is not value-free. All knowledge is created with underlying values that emerge from the questions researchers ask, how they ask them, how they choose to gather and analyze data, what data they explore, and the tools they use to understand this data. Moreover, there are systems in place that often function subjectively to ensure that knowledge produced by certain researchers or produced out of certain academic fields is perceived as more legitimate than others. Social transformation researchers are invested in producing knowledge to improve social conditions and to ensure the sustainable nourishment of human and non-human beings and the planet. This is the context for this podcast. OK School Me invites listeners to experience perspectives on how social change impacts people and communities from different vantage points. We are bringing the ASU classroom to the community because we're committed to inclusive learning and the success of our communities by advancing knowledge of public value. We enter this discussion of social transformation, starting with the self and the body and the ways that certain bodies are marked as disobedient, disorderly, and rebellious. Let's hear from Dr. Heather Switzer, Associate Professor of Women and Gender Studies and co-director of the Humanities Lab. There's no ready answer. For me, I think social transformation involves a willingness to see the world as it is and a refusal to accept the world as it is. Mm -hmm. So the question has had me thinking about if I can be very academic and make a citation, um, what Cydia Hartman calls waywardness. 
Saidiya Hartman is a literary scholar, cultural historian, MacArthur Genius Fellow, and professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. Dr. Switzer cites her book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Righteous Black Girls, Troublesome Women, and Queer Radicals. Listen to Dr. Switzer's explanation of how Hartman's analysis of waywardness helps us understand social transformation as an embodied act akin to a superpower. You know, Hartman's doing a lot of things with waywardness, which is an actual legal category, you know, in the turn of the 20th century, and only women and girls could be cited with waywardness. waywardness. Um, and, of course, the women and girls who were cited with waywardness and sentenced to reform school or other kinds of, like, pseudo-carceral uh, spaces were predominantly <laughs> black girls and women. But Hartman takes this notion of waywardness and kind of flips it, and I think it becomes a, um, a kind of a superpower idea for social change um, because she describes it as the practice of possibility, the insurgent ground that enables new possibilities and new, voca new vocabularies, the ongoing exploration of what might be, it's an improvisation with the terms of social existence when the terms have already been dictated. Mm. It is the untiring practice of trying to live when you were never meant to survive. Dr. Switzer uses Hartman's notion of waywardness to position social transformation as acts of intimacy that start with our personal experience. I, I think it can be easy to assume that social transformation can only come from some kind of like enormous paradigm shifting event that reorganizes social life like in one fell swoop. Mm. But I think what Hartman shows, and I certainly see in my own research, social transformation is almost always intimate. Um, it's about uh, everyday insurgencies, you know, which can look like radical refusals to conform to oppressive norms um, or perpetuate structures that rely on exclusion and thrive on violence. A lot of the stories in Hartman's book um, sort of bear that out. Um, but I think in, in what is also true and what I see in my own research is that sometimes everyday insurgencies can look like really intimately um, inhabiting otherwise or on the surface oppressive norms as actually a strategy for affecting change. She is an expert on girlhood studies and critical development and globalization studies and has spent years researching Maasai schoolgirls in Kenya. This is the context for her understanding of social transformation as intimate and embodied. In, instead of like overtly resisting norms, mm -hmm. which is certainly a way that intimately we can work on a daily basis to transform the social, what I see in, in, in the stories that, you know, I've heard over the many years from, from schoolgirls, Maasai schoolgirls in Kenya, is that sometimes um, resistance really looks like inhabiting a norm 
that is, that is on the surface inherently oppressive. In her infinite display of grace and care, Dr. Switzer brought vegetables from her garden to share with us, which opened the conversation to a discussion on how we practice transformation in our personal lives through our food choices, how we nourish our bodies, and the privilege of gardening as a U.S. citizen, which is necessarily extended to the greater social body. I think about that all the time because it's just, just just with a great deal of privilege that I can, for fun, grow vegetables in my backyard, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and I consider it like a, a lifeline, not because I can't get food otherwise, um, but because it, you know, soothes my mind and my body and my soul, and I always raise more than I can possibly eat because it's so fun to give away. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, every time I turn on the water at the house, cause you can't raise charred without water, hundred percent. And so, you know, maybe somewhere, but not here. And so, um, I think about that every single time I turn on the water or every single time I, you know, buy organic fertilizer, some kind of, you know reasonable approach to having food in your backyard, but is also an incredibly privileged one. Mm-hmm. Um, to have a job that allows me to continue to, you know, do things that I love, earn money, have health insurance, and walk in the backyard and, like, you know, do some weeding and then walk back in and get on the Zoom meeting, yeah. you know. So, so I think that, um, I, again, I think, you know, the... It, Embody, embodying social transformation um, is so dependent on the body, right? And where the body is located vis-a-vis the larger social body. For Dr. Switzer, social transformation is about using your voice at the cadence you so choose and navigating levels of visibility. Social transformation is usually embodied, right? It involves our bodies, but and also the social body, you know, the collective. It's often about voice, which usually ends up being something like refusing silence. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean, as in the case um, with Maasai schoolgirls, that it's screaming loudly. It's more like sometimes a whisper or just an utterance itself is, you know, is sort of a radical refusal. Um, it's sometimes about visibility, I think, and um, about seeing and being seen counter to expectations. Now, let's turn to another girlhood studies expert, Dr. Vera Lopez, professor of women and gender studies in the School of Social Transformation, whose research explores the experiences of youth, specifically Latina girls, within social institutions like the juvenile justice system, residential treatment programs, and school settings. For Dr. Lopez, social transformation is rooted in justice. For me, social transformation is all about justice a way of transforming societies so that the collective good is most paramount and the belief in the collective good is a value that guides policies, practices at the macro level and interpersonal interactions at the micro level. Dr. Lopez describes how her research interests emerged out of her own experiences growing up in a working-class Mexican-American family in Texas and how legal and criminal justice systems impacted her family, another example of how social transformation is an embodied experience. 
All of my work to date has focused on social transformation. I am a first-generation Mexican-American woman born to a 16-year-old mother. Okay. The oldest of three children, I was the first person in my family to go to college, and that includes my extended family. My youngest brother, on the other hand, ended up in the juvenile and criminal legal systems. As I began my doctoral program in school psychology, we focused a lot in my training on individual and family deficit models. The idea that something was wrong with individuals and families, and in the case of black and brown folks, something was wrong with their cultures. Even as a 20-something-year-old graduate student, that did not sit right with me. It wasn't until later when I started to interact with criminal scholars and their scholarship that I realized that my younger brother, like so many other young black and brown folks, was a victim of the racist, unjust, tough on juvenile crime laws of the 1990s that propelled forward the myth of the super predator. As a result of unjust laws and practices, my younger brother ended up on a different path than me. And he was caught up in the system at a very early age. Due to the many, many collateral consequences associated with criminal legal system involvement that disproportionately impact black and brown folks, it has been very hard for him to get ahead in life. It's hard for him to get a good paying job. It's hard for him to qualify for loans. It's hard for him to even build up the capital to own a house. Even though he matured out of gang life decades ago, he still struggles to get ahead today as a consequence of his juvenile and early young adulthood involvement in the criminal unjust systems. And he is just one of many young black and brown folks I share this background to let you know why I focused my career on improving the lives and circumstances of system-impacted young people by calling into question the very systems that keep them chained and tied with limited ways forward. The criminal unjust systems. This is an analysis of criminal justice systems that accounts for the unjust laws and legal procedures that disproportionately track young working class men of color into prison. This pathway is often referred to as the school to prison pipeline or the school policies and procedures that drive certain children into a pathway that begins in school and ends in the criminal justice system. The Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights offers data that demonstrates how black students are suspended and expelled at a rate three times greater than that of their white peers. Students with disabilities are more than twice as likely to receive out-of-school suspensions, and LGBTQIA youth are much more likely than their peers to be suspended or expelled. Dr. Lopez's research goes beyond documenting inequities. She truly believes in the power of research to transform society. Here, she talks about a project she completed in the summer of 2022 with young people to enact justice across systems and to combat racial stereotypes. Now, in terms of my current social transformational research, I've been at this game many, many years, and um, there are many, many examples, but I'd like to share something that I completed this past summer. Okay. Um, with funding from the Spencer Foundation, this project involved conducting a 12-week youth participatory action research project with 12 teen girls and seven ASU students. And the teen girls were in a correction, in a uh, juvenile residential treatment facility that was a secure setting 
All of them had been system impacted with either child welfare, juvenile justice, or both. And all of them had incarcerated family members. Of the seven ASU students, four of them also had incarcerated family members. So we spent last summer trekking out to the residential treatment center every week, and we learned about research as co-learners, and together the young people, the teens and the ASU students, created a 13-minute documentary based on what they wanted to do. So as an adult, I had to sit back and let them lead forward. It was youth-led. Okay. They decided on a project that focused on what they wanted stakeholders, that is people like you and me, um, system providers, direct care, line staff, teachers, policy makers, um, even their parents to know about system impacted youth with incarcerated parents. What they created was outstanding. It blew my mind. They created a 13 minute video entitled, We Are Not Them. While at first glance, the participants seemed to be distancing themselves from their parents who were incarcerated and themselves by saying um, that they were not them, that is really not what they were saying at all. What they were saying is we, as in they and their parents, are not them. We are not the very worst of what society thinks of us. And we are not uh, without rehabilitation we are not the stereotypes that we hear about every day. We are so much more. At the end of the film, which they directed, created, edited, and so forth, if I had tried to edit it, 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 it would have been a disaster. But they learned together with the ASU students to create this, this film. They were asserting and at the end literally shouting and demanding to be heard and saying, we are not them. We are so much more than what society thinks of us and our families, of our parents. It was incredible. I share this example because I feel like it exemplifies socially transformative research. Um, for me personally, it was socially transformative. It took a lot of time and impact, but it was probably the best summer of my life, spending it with these young people. Um, but more importantly, it illustrates the kind of research collaboration that is inclusive and includes the people that we are working with as opposed to just studying. And it's the type of research that can move hearts and inspire change, much more so than an academic article. Now, let's explore the ideas of equity and equitable living, the kinds of transformation necessary and the tools we must use to get us there. Dr. Saw Whitley is the Presidential Postdoctoral Fellow in the School of Social Transformation. Their research centers black feminist and spatial critiques of finance capitalism and urban planning in the neoliberal era. Dr. Whitley offers this definition of social transformation. So for me, social transformation refers to the opening of new possibilities and pathways for living in ethical and equitable relationship to each other and with the world around us. Social transformation is also, um, in my estimation, an organizing principle around which theorists, practitioners, educators, activists, and artists mobilize to open up particular thresholds of change to address social problems and inequalities on a systemic level. Importantly, social transformers are builders and architects of worlds, and we are attuned to the violent and fateful histories of capitalist dispossession and expropriation, slavery, colonialism, gender and sexual domination, prisons and incarceration, borders and exclusion, 
And we're thinking through questions like, how do we remake the world or get us oriented toward horizons pointedly squared away from unequal social relations of the past and present through the political work of insurgent memory. I love their use of the concept world-making to get us thinking about how we are active contributors to the formation of the world we choose to live in. And insurgent memory, hmm, what does that mean? So it's interesting to think through memory as something that's important and, and sort of has an insurgent capacity for the present and the work that we're trying to do today. Insurgent means rising in active revolt, to actively rebel against injustice and the organization of society in ways that are harmful, unjust, and that limit the capacity for all people to experience freedom. It's the releasing of the chains that Dr. Lopez noted. It starts with how inequalities were formed, by whom, for what interests, and why. Social transformation isn't afraid to sit with the root causes of today's crises and maladies, and it isn't hesitant to put its hands in the earth to understand them in order to root them out. From our research interests to what we teach in the classroom, faculty create the learning conditions that expose students to the histories and contemporary manifestations of how societies and people change. Dr. Rudy Guevara Jr., professor of Asian Pacific American Studies, is an expert on U.S. labor and borderlands history, transnational and trans-Pacific migration, Asians and Pacific Islanders in the Americas, and critical mixed race studies. And his work understands how all of these histories are engaged through the exploration of oral history and personal and collective memory. He is a master teacher that takes students on a journey of personal exploration and intellectual expansion through his teaching. I think a lot of the work that I do, or at least I would like to think, is that what I write, as well as what I teach and the, and the, and the exercises I expose my students to, allow them to come to that come to that Jesus moment where they have to realize that um, they are sometimes part of the problem. And, and then after they get beyond those feelings, then um, the things that I enable them to do through exercises, critical thinking discussions, and primarily around discussions is to be comfortable with accepting the things that they do, their actions or inactions, and then how do they move forward to change that. And so I think with my, with the various courses that I do, um, the, the research that I do, the writing. I think all of these are sort of specific elements to sort of uh, provide uh, a lens into whether it's the communities I'm talking about that people become aware of because I have to write my own communities into existence because they're not around um, so that people can see that there's a larger humanity around them beyond their own little bubble um, to the processes and the things that they have to do through their writing. So I oftentimes tell them, you know, this is that matrix where you have, you know. <laughs> and just like that, the AI of the matrix, the architect, senses our desire to rupture the program, to reveal the ultimate truth of our existence. I digress. Go on, Dr. Guevara. Yeah, so I tell him that you're going to swallow the red pill and that I, I, and I, I, I always make this promise to my students is that by the end of the course, you're going to become a very different person because then you're going to see the world from a very different perspective. You're going to come out a, th a critical thinker, reader, and a writer because um, I think we lack that in our society. Um, and I also, you know, share with them that 
this is a burden, but it's also our responsibility if we will actually want to see a more just and equitable world. Universities are dynamic ecosystems with a diversity of spaces and people committed to advancing teaching and learning. One such space at the university is the Institute for Humanities Research, whose mission is to support research and creative engagement with what it means to be human in a constantly changing world by celebrating the best of what the humanities can accomplish across cultures, times, and space. Jacob Levitin, the Institute's program coordinator, shared this about social transformation. Social transformation to me means unleashing the full force of human and more than human capacities to, as Adorno would say, flourish by destroying that which destroys, or Ellison regarded as living with music to not dive with noise. Jacob references cultural theorist Theodore Adorno, who fled Germany in 1933 after being classified by the Nazi regime as a non-Aryan. The university where he taught, the Frankfurt School, was shut down by the Gestapo soon after he fled, along with other notable scholars like Herbert Marcuse, Eric Fromm, Jürgen Habermas, and Bertrand Russell. In a lecture delivered at the University of Vienna in 1967, Adorno proclaimed that liberal democracies are fragile and fascist tendencies will always constitute a threat. Adorno argued vehemently against those who consider fascism a relic of the past, and he described fascist movements as traumas or scars on our democracy. This moment of social trauma was also captured by the great American writer and musician Ralph Ellison, who Jacob also references. Writing in 1955, the same year as the second of two Brown versus Board of Education landmark U.S. Supreme Court cases desegregating public schools in the U.S., Ralph Ellison wrote that it was either live with music or die with noise, and we choose rather desperately to live. Jacob suggests that social transformation is about flourishing and finding joy out of the catastrophic. We end this segment with a student perspective. Marlene Marquez is a first-generation daughter of Mexican immigrants majoring in political science here at ASU and working as a research assistant with Social Transformation Lab Fellow, Dr. Angie Bautista Chavez. Marlene is from West Phoenix and graduated from Independence High School in Glendale, Arizona. She offers an important take on how social transformation is activated in our communities. I think to begin with, embodying social transformation means knowing yourself and knowing who you are. We all have different backgrounds, different experiences that people tend to overlook, especially in the academic world. In my experience, I never really questioned my identity as a Mexican-American. I just knew that my parents were not American. They didn't speak English. We ate Mexican food. It, it wasn't until I came to ASU when I really started taking more pride and reflecting more on my identity. Whenever there's a discussion or even in the essays that I write, I always try to bring my experience forward to educate people that are not Mexican-Americans that are that do not have the same background as me because I just want to break stereotypes. And so in a way, I'm embodying social transformation through the academic world, through writing. I'd like to take a brief moment to thank this episode's participants, Dr. Heather Switzer, Dr. Rudy Kivadera, Dr. Saul Whitley, Dr. Vera Lopez, Dr. Jacob Levitin, and Marlene Marquez as well as our sponsor, Arizona PBS, for making this podcast possible. 
Throughout this episode, we have touched upon topics that seem to move across academic disciplines and different fields of thought. Humanities, education, sociology, history, politics, and even law. When we think of social transformation, it is nearly impossible to think within just a single lens because nearly every aspect of our lives impacts our societies to some degree. In order to attempt to grasp the complexity of such impacts, it is beneficial and even crucial to think through an interdisciplinary lens, which is a peculiar term that we mentioned earlier. To put it simply, interdisciplinary means relating to more than one branch of knowledge. To put that into perspective, let's think about colors. How many of you remember playing with primary, secondary, and tertiary colors in art class growing up? At some point, most of us have learned about primary colors, red, yellow, and blue, and secondary colors, orange, green, and violet, as well as tertiary colors which exist by mixing primary and secondary colors. For this metaphor, let's think of the primary or secondary colors as being disciplines or academic concentrations. When you mix two colors, the result is a new color altogether that provides an artist with new possibilities for artistic creations. When you mix two disciplines, the result is a new area of knowledge production that provides the thinker with new possibilities for change, problem solving, and ways to address contemporary issues from multiple perspectives. So what does this look like in action? Keeping to our topic, here's a fun example that showcases the values of interdisciplinary thinking as they relate to social transformation. Though many may not even think it, video games are a major example of the result of interdisciplinary efforts. In order to create a modern role-playing game like Skyrim, The Witcher, or Elden Rings, just to name a few, a team of people from different disciplines, communication, psychology, physics, economics, art, computer design, etc., have to work together to create these massive projects. All these disciplines work together to create an entire virtual world with a compelling story and believable characters, gaming dynamics, a reward and upgrading system, and in-world physics, currency, and so much more. But what role can these interdisciplinary projects play in social transformation, you may ask? Well, let's add some of the disciplines that were mentioned throughout the episode. Humanities, politics, and education. As is commonly known, video games impact people in a multitude of ways. According to scholars like James Paul Gee, Daphne Bavelier, Sean Green, and Celia Hodent, just to name a few, by utilizing an interdisciplinary approach, video games have been linked to positive effects on a person's well-being, cognition, and has even shown the capacity for learning. For example, in what is sometimes referred to as serious games, the goal is to educate the public about politics. In the 2016 book, Game Paddle, Video Games, Education, Empowerment, the authors aim to help youth to benefit from video games and other primarily non-game related contexts, such as school, intergenerational dialogue, creative activity, or civic commitment. A minor example of this was showcased in Michael Lewis Bartle's experiment where he found that video games as a digital tool supported the idea that video games can encourage socially beneficial attitudes and civic involvement among youth engaging in political spheres. As can be seen in these few examples alone, video games, when utilized through an interdisciplinary lens, can be used for far more than just leisure entertainment. Part of the reasoning of this seemingly distant example was to showcase the power of interdisciplinary thinking. When one discipline or subject may seem distant, thinking interdisciplinarily allows us to bridge concentrations from one end of a landscape to another. This makes way for creating new interpretations and ways to repurpose pre-existing tools and pools of knowledge that may then impact us in new meaningful ways. And that is what social transformation is all about. The goal of this episode was to bring attention to the complexity and multifaceted nature of social transformation. 
Over the past century alone, our society has experienced change from local to global scales that have caused both positive and negative impacts on individuals and communities at large. From one societal change to the next, we continue to evolve and transform our comprehension of each other and our existence within our own lives and the communities around us. By speaking with our guests, we learned that social transformation is a long-term journey that starts within each and every one of us. It involves becoming aware of ourselves and the differences that make us individuals, which, through our actions and inactions, have the potential to impact those around us. We also learned that social transformation for the collective good is resisting and challenging systems and policies that may oppress societal members like sexual and gender diverse individuals and those impacted by the criminal justice system. In order for social transformation to be accomplished, we must utilize research that brings visibility and awareness to the autonomy of social injustices that plague our various communities today. Now, we recognize that social transformation is an expansive topic that can't be fully discussed within the scope of this podcast. So to ensure that our listeners leave with more than they came with, we've included a list of local and national resources in this episode's show notes. We hope that today's discussion, along with the resources provided, bring you new knowledge and insights into your life that inspires you and your endeavors. And remember, regardless of who you are or what you do, regardless of what you study or practice, we are all part of something bigger than ourselves. So why not tap into that bigger piece? Utilize your studies, your practices, your trades, and unique perspectives to think across landscapes to create new waves of change. Get activated, get involved, and help create a better world for those to come. Thanks for listening to OK, School Me. This podcast was produced in the Ed Plus Studios in Tempe, Arizona. It is executive produced by Kyra Trent, with additional production and editorial support from Dr. Mako Fitzward, Dr. Selena Osuna, Jamal Brooks-Hawkins, Amber Green, Hannah Grabowski, and Kyle McKinney. For more information about this podcast, please refer to the show notes and follow us on Twitter and YouTube at ASUSTL.